From surviving to thriving, what will or ought to change in how we organise our working lives in 2021? Hello, I'm Nigel Cassidy and welcome to the CIPD podcast. Well, we've made it through surely the hardest year ever for people professionals. As one maybe somewhat jaded human resources manager put it, dealing with all the awkward employee matters that managers were too scared to deal with. So what happens next? Well, cards on the table, time to pick out the crucial areas of people practice that this month's crew think will be centre stage in the brave world of 2021. With us, firstly, the Group Engagement Director of the Food and Hospitality Group Compass. Her HR career spans BT and Uke's Netta Porte. I knew I should have dressed up for the first show of 2021. It's Deborah Lee. Hello. Hello, lovely to be here. Uh, We have the Director of Human Resources at Seven Trent, with HR experience at several household name companies. He's also helped steer the global merger between Random House and Penguin. It's Neil Morrison, Group HR Director of Seven Trent. Hello. Hi there. And from the home team, a people strategy person whose career takes in both HR and non-HR roles at Barclays and being workplace director of the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants, it's the CIPD's Director of People, Organisational Development and Workplace, Brad Taylor. Hello. Hello. Good to join you. So, Brad, we start 2021 with a huge overhang, don't we? I mean, it's going to be more of the same with near deserted offices still, workers stuck at home, not well equipped. Um, So, I mean, is this unfinished business uh, as far as people policy implications go? Or have we actually just learned to live with all this? I think it's something that we've learned rapidly to live with as we've gone through the year. Um, I think it was it's taken us more quickly on a direction possibly that we were already heading in. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about much more flexible working and how do we enable that. Projects that that seemingly would have taken years to get right and then all of a sudden we'd done it within a couple of weeks and we've been learning as we've been going along. So I think where we are now is we, we have people who are, who are working from home and after being set up with all the equipment and pieces that they need because a lot of people clearly weren't in a fit state to be set up from working from home, what, what we're now discovering is that um, in many ways, they're, they're quite enjoying the flexibility that it's giving them. They're enjoying the, the greater sense of collaboration that the technology provides them with, um, but it has been demanding along the way. So uh, we know from our own surveys that people are saying they would like to do a lot more of this type of working in the future, albeit you know, with, the, with the option of being able to come into the office to collaborate and meet up with colleagues and have that sort of face-to-face connection as, as well. Well, Deborah Lee, I'm sure Compass has had to get to grips with all that. What are your thoughts about what continued support uh, people professionals would need to give people, both practical and in terms of um, how their jobs are organised? Well, I think the first thing I would say is occasionally I hear colleagues say, when we get back to normal, uh, there's no getting back. I mean, there's <laughs> for sure the way in which we approach work and life, I think, is entirely different. We're used to working in different times, taking breaks during the day and and operating in a completely different world. So I think it's about how are you equipping employees, managers and teams the methods and skills and, and, and tools that will allow them to work in this new world. And that means also accommodating the fact that life and work are slightly blurred. The blurring of the lines, I think, is, is one of the ways to look at it. But for sure, we're not going back. Um, there is something very, very powerful in this as well that we need to remember, which is we can never replace that face-to-face interaction and that, that personal building that we have. I mean, we're naturally social creatures. Um, and whilst it's nice to be able to see people, uh, you know, on, on screen, 
it is also nice to be reassured that people have the rest of their body. So I think, you know, that's that's from a human behavior point of view, something that we need to also remember. How do you create those moments of connection alongside also providing flexibility and adaptability. So, Neil Morrison, that does require quite a a deep understanding, just on the practical side, of technology on the part of HR people who may not have uh, been too concerned about it before. I think it does. But the the first thing I'd like to say is we've got to remember that it's only about 40% of people who do work in an office. There are 60% of people who work in other environments as well. And so we are talking about a a relatively small subsection. If I look at our own organisation, by far the majority of them have been working throughout this period of time in their normal working environments. And so one of the challenges for us as HR people is how we uh, knit those different communities together. And that's where, you know, to your point, technology challenges do become quite difficult because if you've got uh, employees in the field, if you've got some people in call centres or if you've got them in treatment works, and others in uh, offices or at home, actually creating a, a system that works for everyone in that sense is, is really quite tricky and difficult. Are you actually changing how you design jobs because of this? Because I guess uh, uh, it has led to changes in how people spend their time or where they spend their time. So certainly for us, we're not because um, what we're doing is changing how people do the things, not what they do. And so, as I say, the vast majority of people are still doing the job in the same way, in the same place, uh, going out day out, day out into the communities. And, 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 you know, these are the kind of key workers that we all went out on a Thursday night and, and, and clapped for. Um, so, so we're not changing job design as such, but we are thinking about how people organize work on a daily basis. So they're using the time in the offices, which are socially distanced to do the work that requires you to be together, the sort of thing that Deborah was talking about, about how people need to come together in those situations and time at home to do the tasks that are better suited to be worked on individually. So, uh, Brad and Deborah, before we leave this, have either of you any other thoughts to add on uh, the sort of practical functions of HR and how they might need to evolve in this year in order to accommodate these changes that started last year? I think in terms of some of the things that we need to think differently about, if I take some pockets of some of our clients and certainly on the professional sides where the the running assumption was people would come into the office, be there most of the time and take most of their benefits, the sort of fringe benefits that you would have there. Um, that needs to be looked at slightly differently. So I think the way in which we look at how do you... Um, attract and retain retain people given the changing expectations that they have in certain environments um, are required. So, you know, if you have an on-site gym or an on-site restaurant, how do you provide those benefits for those working more flexibly in the future of a slightly different office layout? Is the office layout actually conducive to to working in a way that allows people to have that flexibility where it's where it's relevant. But I, I agree with Neil, by the way, on there's vast ways of people who who aren't in that, that environment. And if HR are focusing all of their time and attention on this new ways of working, actually 
you'll create more of a culture of us and them, um, the haves and the haves nots, which which would be a, a real travesty. One of the beautiful things I think that's happened in in twenty twenty, and there's not that many beautiful things, but um, one of the beautiful things is actually a lot of our the jobs that my um, people here do have actually had a higher status than they've ever had before. People are really noticing, appreciating, and understanding the importance of some of the roles that maybe were overlooked in the past or looked down on. And I think, you know, it's really important that we then take that moment, that that ethos and continue to build the pride in in, in those tasks because they are so essential and so important. Um, so I think that's been a, been a nice thing that suddenly those those roles have got an elevated status. And then I think that's the moment to grab of how do you maintain that? Well, it's interesting you say that about people's expectations about their jobs. Because, um, I mean, Brad Taylor, looking at the sort of things people, professionals might need to consider in the next few months, I'm a bit conflicted here because on the one hand, you know, we know joblessness is going to continue to rise and you would think a lot of people would be glad to hang on to their job if, if they've still got one. And yet, you know, individuals have done a lot of thinking about what they might want out of life. And uh, I suppose the talent could walk uh, if it isn't treated right. Yes, it, it's a really interesting situation, really, isn't it? Because the, the situation that we had last year has made people or has helped people to have a, a serious rethink about what, what they expect and what they want to get out of, of their work and their work-life balance. Um, so, so we have this scenario now where on one hand, people want to be able to hold on to jobs and you know, fear for losing jobs. And certainly, you know, furlough and things like that place people in, in a lot of situations where they felt perhaps they didn't have control over their, over their job and over their future. But as we emerge from this situation, and, and as the employers, as the forward thinking employers, I think will be thinking about what does this mean in terms of workplace design? How do we create work environments where people are able to work effectively from home, but also to be able to come into a workplace? And then what does the workplace actually provide for them? I, I think I think it's going to be moving on. It has been. It's going to be moving further from I come in, I sit at a desk or a workstation and I do my work to I want to go to a work environment because it provides a range of services or technology um, or facilities that I can't readily get from my home environment. That sounds all sounds a bit millennial, Brad. Thank you. <laughs> but but I, well, I think this is I think I think we have a generation of, of people who who are more demanding of, of their employers, just like they are in anything in life. They know they can move on. They know they have greater flexibility. Um, I, I think the challenge for employers will be, um, you know, if everyone's workplace is the same, because effectively it's your home, how do you differentiate yourself as an employer? What are the things that make you stand out amongst, amongst all the other employers to enable you to attract and retain the sort of talent that you want to be able to keep in future? And meanwhile, Neil Morrison, of course, uh, things in many ways may get worse before they get better. The uh, wider economy uh, is not good and unemployment uh, is at record levels already. How do you think that will have an impact on, uh, well, obviously some jobs will go, but on the other side of that, on hiring, on recruiting, on how people manage their careers? I think there's two things that are potentially likely to happen here. One is almost the opposite of what Brad is talking about is people who probably should be leaving will stay because they're they're kind of you know maybe they're at a point in their career or a point in their time in a job where it would naturally be sensible for them to move on and do something else but because of the insecurity in the labor market that they will start to stay and so there's a real challenge in terms of HR professionals about how do you engage and, and motivate that population and make sure that they're still contributing as much as they can 
And then the other thing that we see, and we always see this whenever we get a, a, a kind of recession, is job applications start to increase for the number of roles that are there. And what you find is people start to take more chances with jobs. So they'll be applying for things where they aren't necessarily a fit. And so there's a real challenge again for the profession about how do you handle those people ethically and sensibly, those people that are you know, desperate for a job, but maybe applying for something that they you know, aren't necessarily suited for or the pure volumes without mechanisms such as closing jobs early because you've got enough applicants or you know resorting to some weird kind of algorithmic sort of uh, solution that that just confines people to a successful or unsuccessful pile so we have to wrestle with balancing the the, the kind of the volume challenge with the ethical treatment and, and finding a way to manage both and of course, the hospitality industry, uh, Deb, has been hit incredibly hard. So I guess you've had to do a lot of uh, this uh, management process already. Well, I think one of the key things is that it's remembering before you go into any of these is it's not the individual's fault that, that we're in the situation and they're good individuals who we want to maintain a good relationship for because it will come back and we believe really strongly in in that so we were able to very quickly understand the areas that were closing like some of our sporting venues pieces and we had really great great people really keen to help us and, and very dedicated but we had real need in some of our other sectors such as healthcare and so forth and we were able to very quickly redeploy some of those people into that 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 world it's forced us really to think how do we create that level of flexibility when the government's changing whether things are open or shut all the time that <laughs> you have to be on the front foot um, because it's, it, you, you require a different level of speed and pace. And I think what, what it's done is it's broken down and removed all the reasons why you wouldn't make those changes and, and become more agile and more flexible. Um, and, and in that, I think, you know, always keeping that dialogue open with with our people um, and giving them the choice because for some individuals you know there wasn't really much of a choice because they had to be at home looking after their kids there was no other alternative and how do we treat those people and look after them and maintain a really great relationship because it will come back and we will we do want all of our people to be ready and able to to contribute as well and I think one of the things that, that Neil mentioned around the algorithms that when you have so much volume and I, it, it does scare me too because when you want to build a real inclusivity into your business and you want to think about diverse pools, you also want to be open to the fact that maybe someone has taken a chance, but actually maybe this is the right move for them. So I think it gives as much opportunity as it does challenge. And it's how do you keep both of those those things in balance um, that's, that you want people to be successful fundamentally and might require us to think slightly differently about, about what we're doing to support people in that next phase. Well, yes, and just continuing that uh, theme with Brad Taylor, I mean, we're going to see these divisions in our society uh, continue, aren't we? It seems unlikely they're going to be healed in the near future. So that, of course, raises all the questions about uh, diversity programmes and initiatives, some of which sadly have been put on the back burner. I think there was um, a, a knee-jerk reaction last year when, when the pandemic struck for things like um, diversity and inclusion initiatives to be put on the back burner. I, I think then employers quickly realised that, that that couldn't be sustained. Um, and there were a number of incidents that happened last year that that, that demanded employers were, were treating those things seriously. But I think given where we are now this year and how we're thinking about 
um, talent, talent attraction, where we get our talent from. I think on one hand, there's, an, there's a greater opportunity for employers to seek much more diverse talent because effectively we, we can recruit further afield. We can target where we want to recruit so that we, we can bring much more diversity into the employment place. But there's a different set of challenges, I think, for HR in how it helps people um, manage the, the workplace interaction. So, for example, if you're thinking about people um, with neurodiverse issues or disabilities, how does, how does the employer safely look after those people and adapt the working practices to make sure that, that it's inclusive to, to that particular group of people? So, Neil Morrison, some big questions for uh, the whole human resource function as to how they should prioritise this area. Yeah, and I think let's not forget that um, those people that have been most affected in terms of employment by the pandemic have predominantly been female, they've been uh, from ethnic minorities, and they've been the young, because they tend to disproportionately be employed in those industries that have been most affected by the pandemic. And so, again, it's one of the reasons why when we're having this debate, we need to get away from kind of what do the 40% of generally over-indexed white males in office jobs how do we treat them and start to think about the wider workforce and how we successfully manage all of that. Um, but I think the other thing that, that, you know, even if you go into that subset of people who are in the office, one of the difficulties I think is that when we're in a remote situation, we tend to speak to the people that we know the most. Uh, and, and certainly what we saw over the first lockdown was the reduction in, in the number of contacts or the range of contacts that individuals are making. So their worlds become slowly smaller. They're talking only to the same five or six or seven people. And that isn't great for diversity of ideas. It isn't great for diversity of team and thought. And the other thing about physically being present together is you see different people of different backgrounds, of different genders, of different races, and you remind yourself that those do exist in your organization. I think all of these challenges make actually diversity and inclusion more important for the HR profession over the coming years than, than perhaps any time during certainly my working career. One of the things that we did see last year uh, during the pandemic is actually we put more effort into communicating about our inclusive um, practices because we we saw a link of that to engagement. Um, and actually, we didn't we, we did some new things, but we we actually told our story because we felt that it was important to have a drumbeat of communication. And the perception um, that our people had when we did our pulse surveys is that our commitment to inclusion has increased. So we had a much stronger response. And I think in the absence of, of you know, being able, doing other normal stuff that often crowds the communication chairs, we, we, we focused on this area and brought to light some of the, the, the areas. And that has had a particular impact on some of the communities that we really want to, to um, focus on more. And, and so what that's helped us to, to learn is actually things that we already knew, which is the power is in the story, the authentic story, the true story, the what's and all story, um, and the willingness to be able to say we don't always get it right and we, we want to listen and hear, hear, hear your view on it. And it's opened up a different level of conversation for us particularly. Um, and as a result, has opened up minds to, to the agenda. So I think to the point that Neil made, which is when your world becomes smaller, you have to put more effort into creating channels that will widen it if people can't see each other physically in an office and you can't control what what they're they're interacting with all of the time you know what you can control of course is the stories that you're getting out there into the into the business really important i think 
quite. I mean, these initiatives, um, Brad Taylor, cost money. And in many ways, of course, HR has already been fighting for resources. Uh, so that could be a problem to carry out some of these ideas in the coming year. Yeah, but then I think what happened last year enabled HR to take a much more front seat because so much of the business was relying on, on HR to see to, to see the business through through the pandemic and, and through the crisis. So I, I think in, in a lot of ways, it helped the profession to, to take the lead and demonstrate that actually there's a lot of things that it can do and initiatives that it can put in place that really can be beneficial, not just to the employee base of, of the organization, but to the leadership team as well. So in some ways, there's never been a better opportunity for HR to be putting these initiatives and, and new ideas forwards and making the case for, for these sort of things. Because I think, you know, we've got a ready, you know, ready listening ear out there to, to all the things that we would like to be doing. Um, and I'd echo the point as well, you know, that Deb was making earlier on about um, the fact that we're, we're seeing the same thing in terms of engagement has gone up. Um, and, and I think people being in this disrupted state has made them so much more open to um, collaborating with one another in different ways, to being more reflective about um, differences and um, and, and how, how they come together to work effectively. I think it's, it's helped organisations think differently about how they communicate with their people. So it, it's like an open playing field, really, in terms of being able to come forward with new ideas, new initiatives to take this forward. And of course, one of the areas where initiatives uh, are definitely going to be needed is in mental health and well-being. And a lot of people, let's face it, are going to start this new year burned out and isolated and needing help. And in some cases, Deborah Lee, we may not even know which employees they are. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I would probably put HR quite at the top of that list because we've been at the front of a lot of the change, a lot of the emotional turmoil. And, and like many folk, we haven't been able to even leave our home office environment for, for, for a breath of fresh air. So I think that, um, you know, it's it, the need starts at home with HR and looking after each other and supporting each other and, you know, making sure that we're, we're con- conscious of the, 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 the burdens that we're carrying. You but, see, De- Deborah, I noticed it's your view that this is an important area for HR to get involved with. I'm quite surprised you said that because does that mean that some other parts of the organisations are dealing with this, that people don't look to HR to, to deal with this or perhaps they haven't dealt with it properly in the past? No, I think, I think you know, HR firstly probably are have got to sort of treat themselves as a, as a first point because often we're the cobbler's children and we don't look after our own needs in the same way. We, we spend all our energy in, in making sure everybody else is looking up, being looked after. I think that the, the piece around mental health in general, you know, it is a stressful time of year at the beginning of the year. You know, we've just had Christmas and now we're back and it's miserable weather, certainly in the UK. Elsewhere, it's not so, maybe a bit better. But the um, the thing around not being able to know, I mean, this is one of the things that is mental health, I think, as a, as a topic is getting more and more coverage and people are beginning to say it's OK. But most of the time people aren't reaching out, which means you have to be proactive in a starting a conversation around making it okay to say that you need help be equipping people um, managers and support and team to be looking out for each other and creating 
um, channels which people feel are confidential that they can reach out to when they do say they are, are they need help. But often there are pockets of individuals who won't even admit it to themselves that they're struggling um, and it pops out in different ways. You can observe it in the behaviours, you can observe it in the tensions. And I think this is where HR need to be incredibly vigilant because, um, as we know, we all look for evidence that um, supports our own mental model of thought. And if we'd like to think that everything is easy, uh, that we'll see evidence to being it. But I think being awake to the point that actually it's likely that you've got a lot of people who are on the edge um, and therefore what are you doing to support that? But, but I would definitely say it's important at this point more than ever to look after your HR colleagues because they are, like you, um, probably hearing a lot of the, the, the tension, the frustrations as normal um, and being asked to solve them all. Um, and there's only so much you can carry. So, Neil Morrison at Seven Trent, how are you tackling all that? It's tricky, isn't it? Because um, I think one of the things about mental health is that it affects different people in different ways at different paces. Uh, some people are very visible, some people aren't. Some people are more comfortable about talking, uh, some people aren't. We're very lucky. We've got a well-established network of mental health first aiders within the organisation. We've done a lot of work over the last three or four years to really raise the profile of conversations around mental health and and, and that's um been incredibly beneficial for us um during the the pandemic but i think uh where it is tricky is often some of the uh, visual cues that you would get from someone so you know the ability to look at them to look at how they're how they're presenting you know whether they're looking tired whether they're looking a little bit disheveled around the edges you know, whether their um, just their body language is giving you a sense of being, you, you know, troubled is much, much easier to do uh, in person. We are sentient beings. You know, that sense of being around people is really, really uh, beneficial to understanding how someone is. And that's much harder online. And so what we're trying to get managers to do um, where they are dealing with people remotely is to be more explicit about asking the questions. So if you're limited in the number of senses that you can use, then you've got to over-index on the senses that you have, particularly around questioning and listening uh, and uh, tonality of voice and things like this to try and really understand. Uh, Brad Taylor, I know the CIPD has got a lot of resources in this area. Any sort of final thoughts for any of the work that you've done on what uh, professionals can do to make sure they're, they're doing the best for people? I mean, certainly one of the things that we saw last year was that every time we would survey our people, um, you know, asking them both in terms of how they were coping with with working more remotely and, and how did they think about the future of working remotely, every time we did that, more people would then suddenly speak up and say, oh, well, actually, you know, I need, a, I need help with a monitor, I need help with a chair, I need help with something else. And and it really does, it, it struck us that you you can't ask people enough. You've got to keep talking about it with people, um, making it clear about where you see the organisation going because people construct their own reality in their heads about how long they think this situation might last for. Um, and, and if it's left unchecked, you have no idea that they're, they're suffering with, with these sort of things. So I think surveying, pulse surveying, speaking with your people and encouraging them to speak up is one thing. Um, using focus groups or, or sounding boards you know, group groups of employees to come together with leadership and just talk through and try to validate what you think you're seeing from your survey data with with actual people's 
lived experiences. Um, and then the other thing that we've grappled with as well is, is the, the difference between blanket approaches or, or organizational approaches to these sort of things versus the, the individual role of the line manager. So we, we would worry a lot about um, people being on you know, constant Zoom calls or Teams calls, um, video conferencing. And these are all ways of working that people are not, weren't originally accustomed to. So it's causing people to have to work in ways that demand extra cognitive load because they're, they're having to do things a lot differently. Um, you know, it's a bit like when you first drive and you're thinking of everything that's going on inside the car rather than just getting to the destination. And that was draining people. So on one hand, you, I think there are some blanket approaches you can do, but it's not going to work for, for the entire organization because different teams will work differently. And the key thing that we've tried to encourage is the, the role of the line manager really does have to be keenly interested in mental health, well-being, inclusion, development, you know, having conversations, initiating conversations with their people about these things all the time. Um, because it's, it's dealing with the individual scenarios and working with your HRBPs to deal with those individual scenarios that will really make sure that as an organization, you're, you're, you're getting to all your people and you're helping them in, the, in their particular circumstances. Great. And uh, as we come to the end, just a final thought, perhaps from each of you uh, for this new year, uh, Deborah, any particular qualities you're going to try and deploy or get your people to deploy? I think um, optimism is the first one. I think that's, you know, if you believe it, you can feel it, you can do it. But I think the other thing is really working harder at creating more connection and maintaining some creativity in the process. It's one of the things that we see has suffered as a result of, of this remote working scenario in those teams, because you're just not sparking that innovation of thought that Neil was talking about earlier. So finding methods of, of creating the space to connect and, and, and create that creativity will be continued for us. Great. And Neil Morrison, what's your New Year message going to be to your people? I think it's about fairness. It, it really is about thinking about fairness throughout everything we do. We've talked about, you know, the difference between home workers and those people who are working out in communities. We've talked about inclusion. We've talked about, you know, the challenges of, of those people with caring responsibilities. We've talked about flexible working. We've talked about mental well-being. All of that comes back to how do we build fairer, better organisations? And that comes down to individual decisions made by HR professionals and managers every day. And so bringing that lens into everything that we do. Great. Brad Taylor. I think it's about autonomy and openness. In autonomy as in, you know, it's going to be more and more okay for you to go about your working day the way that works for you. Um, and don't become prisoner to the conference calls or perceived expectations that you've got to be in front of a keyboard all the time doing something. You know, build into your day focus time, build into your day time out just to have you know relaxed chats with colleagues and connect with colleagues um, and time as well as time to, to to you know work on the projects and pieces of work you know and, and and feel empowered to do all those things great well thank you one and all some terrific inspiration on that theme of turning surviving into thriving in 2021 uh, this is clearly a year when the range of soft skills that we debated remember our last cipd podcast we talked about soft skills they should help us all support each other and get things done and in that vein some great feedback from one listener ralph lewis noting how we all refer back supported and developed each other's points exactly what we did on this show compare this he said to political interviews 
<laughs> well, to be fair, it can be a lot harder when your guests don't actually uh, choose to answer the actual question. Uh, well, you all certainly have today, and that is our lot for this edition. Uh, lots of good podcasts planned for the months ahead, so please subscribe to make sure that you don't miss any of them. But for now, from me, Nigel Cassidy, and everyone at the CIPD, it's goodbye, and here's to a brighter and better new year. Thank you.